Welcome to Lumpin Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin Radio spoke with author Gary Indiana about the assassination of Gianni Versace, talked with a member of the Sun-Times editorial board, and discussed what happens when a beer brand declines. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin Week in Review for March 16, 2018. Maria Smith talked with Michaela Blaze and Judge Stephanie Miller about judicial reform, mass incarceration, and segregation in Chicago. News from the Service Entrance with Mario Smith airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. We have on the phone today, she is running for judge here in Illinois on this very horrible-sounding uh music bed that I have for her. Ladies and gentlemen, Judge Stephanie Miller is on the show. Hi, Judge Miller. Oops. Wait, can she hear me? I don't know. Hey, Judge Miller, can you hear me? I can. Hey, how you doing? Good. Good. It's good to hear your voice. <laughs> this is what uh, campaigning in Chicago weather sounds like. Yeah, hey, don't worry. I have the same thing, although I'm not campaigning. I'm out here fighting <laughs> crime. Like you, um, big big week coming up. Uh, the election and everything. How are you feeling about where stuff stands so far for you? Well, I am cautiously optimistic. We're working hard, knocking on doors, phone banking, meeting the voters, and getting our message out. Um. So, hi, Judge Miller. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's a pleasure. I just wanted to see if you could share a little bit about so I think um, Judge Miller's race is particularly important because she is part of the new bond court and I don't know if you're familiar Mario and I and the judge can talk to it more speak to it more but um, currently uh, Tony Preckwinkle, Kim Fox, a few of those cool kids are trying to um, reduce the cash bonds mm -hmm. and they're trying to let people um, out with I-bounds who do minor crimes. Right. Judge Stephanie Miller is part of that new bond court, part of judicial reform, part of making everything better in Cook County, and that's why her race <laughs> is important. Um, can you, uh, Judge Miller, tell us a little bit about the, the guidelines that you have for bond court reform? Absolutely. So... I was appointed to the bench in January of 2017, but in September of 2017, the law changed regarding how we deal with bonds for individuals who are arrested for misdemeanors and felonies. The premise is that there are people sitting in jail simply because they cannot afford bond, not because they pose a threat to the community or because they will affect they will fail to appear in court. It's simply that the bond amount that was set is too high for indigent people to pay. So part of what Chief Judge Tim Evans, Cook County uh, President Tony Preckwinkle, and Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox have crafted with the legislature is a sensible approach to bond reform that looks at an individual's violence or lack thereof, and their compliance or noncompliance with appearing in court, and gives it a score. 
we use that score. Ultimately, it's the, at the judge's discretion, but we use that score to craft an appropriate bond. And the premise is to move away from monetary bonds and come up with truly a common-sense approach to make sure that people pre-trial who have not been found guilty are afforded the opportunity to continue to work, live at home, and continue to support their families without unnecessary restrictions. That's exactly right. I mean, let's think about this. Um, you're driving down the, the, the street. You have uh, a failure to appear or something. You mm-hmm. get locked up. Some people will not have the money to get out. If you don't show up at work the next day, you're fired. Right. What if you don't come home to your children? What if, I mean, the ripple effect from being locked up and when before you're even convicted or sentenced is tremendous. And and a lot of these people, they they might be getting out on an I-bond, but there's still, be, many are being monitored. Is that correct, Judge Miller? Yeah. We absolutely look at a threat to the community and recidivism, meaning how often are people based on background, committing offenses and not showing up in court. So instead of posting a monetary restriction, which a lot of people simply can't make, and keeping them incarcerated in Cook County Jail, we're coming up with more common sense options to make sure that they do appear and that they do comply. So pretrial services, a curfew, Sometimes electronic monitoring, which is a bracelet around the ankle that requires you to be in a specific location. Oh, Mario's familiar the with that. No, I'm not. The important part of that, <laughs> sorry, the important part of that is they can still work and they can still be with their families. Mikayla's lying on me, Judge. <laughs> I I'm, just said Mario's familiar with that. I am a good dude. <laughs> I am I am a good standing with every when policemen meet me for the first time. I'm like I've never seen you before, and I'm like exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why has the it been, has no comment? Exactly. Thank you. How come there's been so much? Um, there are a couple of questions I want to ask you. One of them is why is there or, or why has there traditionally been pushback to this idea? Was it strictly because of an opportunity for the county or the state to get to get money? Um, or, or what, what exactly was the pushback? Well, I can't, I can't speak to the monetary part of that. Um, but I can tell you in large part, having knocked on doors and in part of my campaigning and talking to community groups, there is a fear there because the few times when somebody is given a low bond, and they go out and commit a truly violent offense, that's what hits the papers. That's what is sensationalized. And people see it as, oh, look, if they'd just been held in custody, if they'd been given a higher bond, they wouldn't have gone and committed this violent offense that they're now charged with. Mm-hmm. So I think no it, offense yeah. to uh, your radio show or anything else, but the media kind of has sensationalized these few incidents where there has been a negative effect. Mm -hmm. And it's caused a lot of judges to CYA, right? So they're just like protecting themselves from potential backlash. And there's no proof anywhere. There's no evidence saying that because somebody paid $100 that they're not going to commit another crime. Bond doesn't cause, bonds do not cause crime, right? right. (laughs) Criminals cause crime crime so this I, I think this is just a really smart approach and I and and you know at, 
checking out some of the social media pages, there's there's some real backlash to this. It's it's it makes sense judicial reform, but um, I've seen people come after Judge Miller's like you're letting rapists and murderers out in the street. Like everybody, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's a portion of society who think people who went to jail are like the worst people in right. the world, right? right. So, right. Um, so this is uh, this is one of those races that I'm telling you is important. I think if um, Judge Miller is not elected to the bench. I think it shows uh, a sign um, that, or an indication to people that maybe Cook County doesn't want this kind of judicial reform. Mm. So that's why I think this was an uh, this hers is an important case and um, uh, campaign, and that's why I wanted her to be on the show today. There's something else that I want to ask you, Judge, and I'm hoping that you'll be able to give me a really succinct answer. Why <laughs> is it? Tra- I will try. <laughs> why, why is it traditionally so bloody difficult to discern ju- judicial candidates? It seems that it's been made really hard for the average person who who may not be politically savvy to walk into a voter booth or a situation where they're getting ready to vote and have to go through your number 158 on this ballot. Uh, yep. I, I, how does how does this play now in 2018? Shouldn't there be an easier way for the voter to be able to find out more about judges and to be able to vote for a judge? Well, I think it has definitely gotten easier over time with the advent of social media and people now seeing, especially in the political co- climate that we live in, with what's going on on the federal level in the White House and what's going on in the gubernatorial mansion here in Illinois, that people are now seeing judges matter, that the judicial system is the last check and balance on the executive branch and the legislative branch, and people are seeing that that's important. Prior to that, people didn't really know about judges. If you had never been a defendant or a victim or a witness or gotten a divorce or had to deal with a probate matter because somebody had passed away, you would never have encountered a judge before and wouldn't know anything about them. What a lot of the bar associations and other organizations are doing is trying to get the word out about why judges are important and why qualified judges are important. Uh, The Tribune came out the last two days with their endorsements of judicial candidates, after reviewing all of the Bar Association ratings, after going through a questionnaire that we all had to fill out, um, and doing an investigation effectively into judges and judicial candidates. And they did an incredibly thorough job. So they're trying to, you know, publicize um, all of that information as best they can. But I understand it's always going to be hard because if you've never encountered a judge in your life, it stands to reason that you wouldn't really know much about them. Hitting Left spoke with Lorraine Forte, a new hire at the editorial board of the Sun-Times. 
Forte spoke about education, the challenges Chicago faces, and the new look sometimes under labor leadership. Hitting Left with the Klonsky Brothers airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. We're here with uh, Lorraine Forte and uh, enough, of, enough about us. And Mike Klonsky. <laughs> and, my Kl- and my brother Mike Klonsky. Yes. And Fred Klonsky. And Fred Klonsky. At the control board. Or what did you call <laughs> the it? Sound the sound board. At the, the sound, sound board. board. This is like I'm, you know, like I'm at a club. I'm clubbing. <laughs> I don't know. You're a, you're a DJ, Fred. <laughs> no. I did. I, well, I guess I was. Yeah. I played music. What Were did you, you play? The, oh, Curtis I didn't say. Mayfield. That was the great Chicagoan, mm-hmm. Curtis Mayfield, singing New World Order. Love Curtis Mayfield. Yeah, and it certainly is a new world order, but we have to <laughs> kind of re-examine what that means. <laughs> but, it, but what a great product of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Lorraine Forte, yes. uh, good morning again. Good morning, Mike uh, Ro- and Fred. Robert Fader at uh, WGN uh, reports. Lorraine Forte, executive editor of the Chicago Reporter and former editor-in-chief of Catalyst Chicago, mm-hmm. has been hired by the Sun-Times as a member of its editorial board starting March 4th, Forte will write editorials and help select and edit op-ed columns and letters. She will report to editorial page editor Tom McNamee mm-hmm. in a return to the Sun-Times for Forte. It is a return to the Sun-Times for Forte, who previously was a reporter. I'm really thrilled and excited to rejoin the staff of the Sun-Times, she said in a statement. I'm looking forward to playing a key role at the paper as it keeps moving forward during challenging but exciting times. Uh, mm-hmm. That was Robert uh, Fader. It ca- his, his announcement caused quite a stir. I don't know if you, I'm, I'm sure you read some of the comments. <laughs> well, on that. yeah, it's, well, whatever. Some people were not happy with <laughs> well, the, the news. I don't know why. I've never heard of a of a, somebody being named to the editorial board to cause such a commotion. <laughs> I can't imagine why it would have caused commotion. Uh, I haven't written a single editorial yet. <laughs> <laughs> one one uh, commenter said, the hiring of Lorraine Forte by the Sun-Times... I don't know who this person f- is. ...for its editorial board shows that the paper is committed to diversity of color, but not thought. I don't know who that person was, and that person has not read a single... I don't know who he is. He probably hasn't read a single thing I've written. I can guarantee you there's not a single person I on think earth who's going to agree with everything I say. Yeah. And it is what it is. I think I think he was really talking about color, not thought. Well, there's <laughs> that, but I wasn't going to go there. So, I mean, yeah, whatever. I, I So how do, you, how do you describe yourself, uh, Lorraine, as a... Uh, aside from uh, African American woman, mm-hmm. how do you describe yourself in terms of thought? I mean, like, where are you coming from? Well, I try and first of all base my thoughts on reality and not what someone, what I think someone thinks. And as I, I think I said this in the interview. I mean, what you know, my opinions. I try and base them on a you know basic set of values of you know fairness and equity and, you know, having people be treated decently uh, and also equ- on facts. Uh, equity, there you go. You just exposed yourself. Oh, well, okay. So I'm not for inequality. So <laughs> well, that shows right. that, that shows, shows that, uh, you know, you're... I'm not for... Yeah, okay. You're one of those people. I'm one of those people that wants to treat people, even people who might disagree fairly because... You know, we say that's what America is supposed to be about. Now, we know that hasn't always been the case, but 
You know, well, that's what we say. You we know, but I would make the argument that if you uh, uh, change the, if you make uh, uh, editorial boards more diverse mm-hmm. uh, by its very nature, that makes them more varied in their thought. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, like I said, there's, there's, I can guarantee you there's going to be things that not everybody in the room is going to agree on, even if you're all, and, you know, the Sun-Times is, you know, kind of center-left, I guess you would call it. Um, And the new owners, I think the new owners are, you know, committed to having it be a, you know, a Chicago paper, a paper that, you know, it it wants the city to prosper and, and is kind of a champion of, Middle class and working folks. Well, I, and, I remember when I came, when I, we were talking about coming back, coming to Chicago in nineteen, mm-hmm. you know, in, in nineteen seventy uh, I think there were four papers in town in those. Yes, uh, four and days. now there's only two, and, and no uh, one, right. And even in those days, the Sun Times was considered the progressive paper in town, mm-hmm. and the, it was the it was the ev- right it was the evening paper. Uh, and, okay. Uh, was it or was it the? Yeah, I I wasn't living here then, yeah. so I don't. And the remember Tribune that, was, but, but the yeah. Tribune was like thought of as the, well, first of all, the conservative paper in town, right. and more aimed at the suburbanites, and yes, the, and, and the and the sometimes are. was the was the urban it was the and, and, and urban is. has always been a code word for uh, right uh, and then, for people of color. Well, it was owned by the Marshall Field. Company, but then right? there has been a number yeah, of owners since yeah. then. There's, I mean, since right. I was there, and I was there when, uh, you know, Conrad Black era. And, <laughs> Goodness. Um, and there's been, what, two owners since then? Yeah. Three yeah. there, Michael Farrow, most re- re- yeah. yeah, I can't remember, but now. But in 2017, a consortium consisting of private investors and the Chicago Federation of Labor, right. led by businessman and former Chicago alderman Edwin, Edwin Eisendrath, uh, through his company's ST Acquisition Holdings, mm-hmm. acquired the paper and its parent company, sometimes Media Group, from their owner, Rappaports. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So, yeah, that's been the most recent uh, recent change. Is that, mm-hmm. uh, ha- How has that affected the uh, editorial content of the paper, or has it? Well, I, they're... As I said, they describe themselves as as center left, and and in the you know talking with uh, Edward Eisendrath, he's very much wants the the paper to be a paper of Chicago and and of working people, you know, of people in you know Bridgeport and Chatham and you know people who get up and go to work every day and the middle class, working class, and, you know, poorer people who need a, a, to be lifted up yeah. and not the paper of the suburbs. And when I was there previously, the goal was to try and get suburban readers because that was a thought. That's where the money is. That's where the advertisers want to advertise. They want to advertise to wealthier people in the suburbs. And so that was the goal then and that obviously didn't work now we could do a show about the squirrels of bridgeport i think what we need to focus on are you okay oh my god kyle sort through your mail it's all junk just throw it out no you pick it up 
It can't be strewn all over the entrance. It's a hazard. Last thing we need is another visit from the fire marshal. Last thing I need is less time to do all the crap around here. I got to do. You have no idea how much what the flip is their problem? Uh, John's identity got stolen a while back. Say what? Ooh, that's it. That's the show we're going to do about. English, please. On this episode, we're going to do an investigative report on identity theft. Every year, exactly 323 Americans get their identities took. Size matters investigates. Hang on, did you fact check that? That's the fact that I said the thing. If that figure is exact, then the entire country is a nation of identity thieves. A plausible dystopia indeed. Science Matters investigates. I met up with the host of Radio Free Bridgeport, John Daly, to expose the truth about identity theft. Cool beers. This one's a Rhode Island Dirty mm. IPA. I wanted to try Hello, one. good sirs. We're recording an episode of Size Matters. I know. I can see that. What's the episode about? Identity theft and the thieves who steal them. I would like to keep that a private matter and The jig is up. How long you been gallivanting around as other people? That, that is not what Who's I, staring uh, the meat suit? The what? This is good stuff. Keep going. Don't nag him on. Inspl- explain yourself, imposter. Speak! Someone used my personal information to go on a shopping spree. I think he's lying. That sounds rehearsed Yeah, it me. does. Jess, what the... Ow. Hey, not cool. <laughs> then tell me who you is. My identity got stolen. I wasn't taken over by the body snatchers or the talented Mr. Ripley. Or the thing. The what? what? The 1982 John Carpenter classic or the 1930s classic. So wait, someone stole your credit card. Credit cards, PIN, social security uh, number, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's kind of boring. I can't do a whole show on that. Don't look at me. I think your concept of identity theft is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I totally see that now. That's good producing, Jess. Yeah, I'm great. Kyle, just be glad you're incapable of having your identity stolen. How so? No address, no records. What about all the mail? That's right. What? You are on the grid. It's all junk. Credit card offers and social security, what have you. Uh, Hang on. Credit card offers? Yeah. That means you have credit. Wait a sec. How many credit cards do you have? I ain't never had one. I'm checking here on the net to see if you have anything open in your name. Oh, yeah. My suitcase. Calm down, down, Kyle. I just use my suitcase. I'm using your suitcase because it's what I gotta do. Kyle, you're freaking okay. out. You need okay. to relax. I've never okay. seen him okay. so distraught. John, how long has this guy been using uh, Kyle's info? About 30 years. Whoa. Just hold on. Let's see where in Scottsdale, Arizona, this guy lives. Wow. That is a nice piece of property. What? Property? Gets worse. You paid for med school. What? You gotta be Kyle, kidding me. don't worry. We're what? gonna kill this middle thing. Yeah, I don't know about that, but... We're going to confront them. I got to go find him. Someone buy me a plane ticket. I made my way to Scottsdale, Arizona, where I met up with a man going by the name of Kyle Seismankowski. We agreed to meet up in an industrial park outside of... Ah, uh, crud. The battery on the portable recorder is about to die. I'll talk fast. We agreed to meet up... Hey, Kyle's alive! Boy, what a trip. What a great time I had. Did you end up using the lie? The what? Uh, so is that guy in prison or what? Actually, this jerk turned out to be one of the coolest people I've ever met in my whole life. Say what? Yeah, he's got a great taste in clothes, cars, and this house is so big, I learned a new word to describe it. Palatial. This is the man who stole your information? Not at all. Turns out his name is also Kyle Seismankowski, and he was also born on September 29th, 1946 in Chicago. Well, that's because he ripped you off. No, it turns out it's just a coincidence. Kyle, for years he's been using your credit to establish himself in society while you've been stuck squatting and mooching. Not entirely. No, actually, completely. 
Now, that just so happens that we have identical social security numbers. The only difference is he actually has a social security card and a birth certificate. You don't? Nope. My dad just wrote all my information down on an index card and told me not to lose it. I gotta go and pack. Excuse me, guys. Wait. I'm confused. If Kyle Seismankowski of Scottsdale, Arizona has proof of who he is... And who is our Kyle Seismankowski? Size Matters Investigates? I-94, we're in conversation with author Gary Indiana, cultural critic and author of Three Month Fever, recently re-released by Semiotext. Indiana spoke about con artists, the mendacity of journalists, and asked why the assassination of a fashion designer overshadowed the deaths of four other men. I-94, Lumpin' Radio's books and literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. Andrew had carried off endless small retouchings of his backstory in the sluggish circles of Hillcrest, tinkered with his pedigree, adding daubs of racy color in its bars and restaurants, not simply to foist between himself and people he befriended a cautious distance, but also to win their acceptance, to whittle a niche in the soporific local narrative. And Andrew believed himself, believed in the multifaceted characters he incarnated. Now, oddly, he had become conscious for the first time of a spawning deception, acting a role at odds with the natural scan of his feelings, for although the occasion itself proclaimed that he was abandoning Hillcrest, the restaurant, and everyone present, a fair chance existed that his disappearance would not be the gradual vanishing they expected, mitigated by phone calls and letters and visits that wove a slender but tangible cord of continuity. There was in fact a strong possibility that he might dematerialize more unaccountably, leaving a sour reek of failure or pathetic pretense behind, the nervous breakdown mess of an adolescent who leaves home too early, bottoms out, and moves on, never retrieving his remaining stuff from the apartment on Robinson. There was the possibility that his new life might involve a transforming struggle, producing total amnesia about his old life. In other words, that Anthony the waiter, George the manager, and Kenneth and Robin and these people gathered to mark his departure would, somewhere in the middle future, think differently about him perceive themselves betrayed and negated by him, unraveling his stories without generosity and citing the abandoned VCR, magazines, old bills and dirty socks in Eric's apartment as evidence of a disordered mind, the embarrassing residue of screwed up loser whose whereabouts nobody knew. He imagined desultory late afternoon bar chatter, the sloppy talk of people complacently going nowhere, watery happy hour cocktails and big plastic tumblers, the sharply angled shadows on the pavement outside the bars. In the tropical anomie of this slow, easy town, Andrew De Silva would persist as an assortment of knowing anecdotes, until the people he knew grew older and forgot about him, speculating on rare occasions when his name came up that he probably died. He reminded himself that dear as these people were, they did not really matter. If he walked into Flicks or some other Hillcrest gay bar ten years from now, he would find them exactly where he'd left them. At the so-called farewell dinner, Andrew said it was a bittersweet occasion. Said that everyone had his own ideas about him, but nobody really knew him. It was the sort of maudlin thing most people said when leaving one place for another, and nobody thought much about it at the time. And that was a reading from... 
Gary Indiana's three-month fever. We want to thank the Center for Search and Research for their music today, and of course, Shanna Van Volt, as always, for the readings. Gary, I happen to think that was a particularly penetrating passage because it summed up, uh, in my mind, the image of a man who isn't as interesting, frankly, as he, he thinks he is, and is very concerned with surface appeal. And in reading the book, uh, it struck me that this quest for kind of a surface fascination and a frictionless um, existence, so to speak, is kind of what drives him and ultimately puts him over the edge. Yes, but there's more to that. Because one of the things that I tried to do, in fact, maybe the main thing I tried to do in the book, which was written many years ago, by the way, it's just been reissued, Um, um, uh, was where he came from. Which at the, you know he came from San Diego. Um, he was his father was Filipino. Um, like many, many Filipinos, his father had gotten to the United States by joining the U.S. Navy in the Philippines, and um, had uh, you know gone into one sort of enterprise or another. At one point, was a you know stock trader and ripped off a lot of his clients. Um, but, I mean, what I discovered when I went to San Diego to live for a month and a half, you know, was that Filipinos were the lowest people on the totem pole, um, in the, you know, in the social hierarchy of San Diego, which is, um, pretty peculiar. Uh, not peculiar (laughs) in the sense that it's unique, but just, you know, the way that, um, for instance, um, he was able to finesse his backstory, even because you know, they put him in this school, bishop school, in uh, um, uh, you know um, the, the elite community. I'm forgetting the name of it, um, and he just you know constructed a different identity for himself, um, which happened to be Jewish um, rather than Filipino. So. And um, that, I mean, you know, and the family pathology interested me quite a lot, you know. Um, I don't think these things come out of nowhere, you know. He, he, I mean, he and his siblings and his mother were just sort of left with um, the father's pension check from the Navy uh, when his father took off, became, um, you know, an acolyte of some spiritualist, you know, Amy Simple McPherson type in, uh, in Montana or someplace, and then went to went back to the Philippines, where he continued to pursue his spiritualist destiny. I mean, it was a pretty messed up situation that he was born into, really. Um, and, you know, I don't think that he found it acceptable to be uh, at the bottom of the pile, um, and who does? But his way of, you know, the thing, I'm sorry to interrupt myself, but the thing that I've noticed about, uh, you know, doing several books about people engaged in one kind of criminal activity or another that are, you know, in some ways con artists, is that the energy that they put into the con and you know that theory, Sneaky Pete, which is so wonderful, I mean, really shows this big time, 
um, you know, the, the energy they put into the con is is way in excess of what they would need to get legitimately rich, legitimately famous. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's 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 the love of the content. In a certain way, he loved this too. You know, I mean, he he, he enjoyed it until it started to fall apart, um, and it fell apart because he wasn't a good con artist. Um, you know, he got found out. People knew he was a liar. Um, not a bishop necessarily, but uh, but later. Boy, I'd love to get your take on the current president. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are some similarities, although I just <laughs> there are quite a few similarities. In fact. <laughs> the but con except artist except is uh, probably um, uh, one of the. Except that I, I, I don't think that that um, I don't think Hernandez was. I mean, of course, when he killed these people, you can't really know what was going on in his head. I tried to figure that out. But I don't think that he was really driven by meanness and the need to dominate other people, um, except maybe in a very, very, not, not, well, obviously lethal social sense. <laughs> I mean, and, until, until he went kind of haywire. Um, I think, you know, he just wanted to be accepted as something that he wasn't. Um, because he knew that what he was wasn't going to be accepted by the people around him and the people that he wanted to, to be around. The Trump Diaries. This week, Trump imposes steep tariffs, setting off fears of a global trade war. Rocketman says he'll meet the dotard. Rex and Gary are out. The porn storm grows, and Trump loses another election. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 413, March 8th. Trump today imposed tariffs on steel and aluminium with a rollout to occur in the next 15 days. Canada and Mexico may be exempted if they agree to a wholesale rewrite of NAFTA. Trump said during the signing ceremony that Gary Cohn, who quit yesterday as Trump's top economic advisor, was, quote, not strong enough on tariffs and called him a globalist, but added he still likes him. Robert Mueller has obtained evidence about an attempt by former Blackwater head Eric Prince to establish a back channel with the Kremlin. Prince had previously denied the meeting's contents, claiming it was a one-off chance encounter. In fact, it was a planned meeting with higher-level Russian contacts. Mueller is also now investigating witness tampering by Trump. Trump asked Don McGahn and Rince Priebus about their discussions with Mueller's investigators. Trump wanted McGahn to claim that he had never been asked to fire Mueller, which McGahn refused to do. And as the Stormy Daniels scandal starts to come to a full boil, Trump is also reportedly very unhappy with Sarah Huckabee Sanders over her handling of questions. Sanders admitted the White House had taken Daniels, real name Stephanie Clifford, to arbitration and then claimed they had won, giving credence to many of Daniels' claims. 11 countries signed on formally to the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership. Trump withdrew the USA from the pact in his third day in office, claiming it was a bad deal. China may now reportedly join the pact as a major player. And Corey Lewandowski met with congressional investigators. Hope Hicks told a congressional committee that her email had been hacked, and Paul Manafort pled not guilty to 18 counts of money laundering and conspiracy. Day 414, March 9th. 
Stormy Daniels' lawsuit against Trump revealed that lawyer Michael Cohen sent several emails from official Trump organization accounts tying the incident to the campaign and possibly breaching campaign finance laws. The payment to Daniels is considered an impermissible in-kind payment, though it is unknown how many campaigns have ever made hush money payments to pornographic film stars. Trump is also considering adding another lawyer to his team to handle the Daniels case. In a shock, Trump agreed to meet with Kim Jong-un, head of North Korea. No North American president has ever met with North Korean leadership, and the move is an audacious and unprecedented one. The move contains huge risks. North Korea has long craved respectability on the world stage, but Trump's sanctions have severely damaged the country's economy. The meeting was apparently set without preconditions. Some have wondered if Trump made the sudden announcement, which caught his staff off guard and undercut his own State Department, to distract from the mushrooming Daniels and Russia scandals. And Chief of Staff John Kelly stopped EPA head Scott Pruitt from holding public debates challenging climate change. Kelly told Pruitt such debates would only embarrass the White House. Florida Governor Rick Scott signed legislation to tighten gun restrictions, raising the legal age for gun purchases to 21, instituting a three-day waiting period, and establishing a program to arm some school personnel. The NRA responded to it by suing, claiming the waiting period, quote, discriminates against young women because they are statistically unlikely to become mass shooters. Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke's office spent $139,000 to replace two doors on his office. Zinke was reportedly unaware of those astronomical costs. And Trump's legal team told Robert Mueller they will trade an interview with Trump for a promise to end the investigation 60 days after the interview. Sam Nunberg also testified before Mueller's investigation. Day 415, March 10th. Trump gave a 75-minute speech at a Pennsylvania rally ostensibly to buck up the candidacy of Rick Saccone, who was currently locked in a dead heat with Democrat Connor Lamb in a special election. In the speech, Trump spoke admiringly of the death penalty for drug dealers, spoke of American police officers grabbing gang members by the neck and throwing them in a paddy wagon, and insulted newsman Chuck Todd, calling him, quote, a sleepy son of a bitch. Trump reportedly did not speak much about Saccone because he thinks he is a, quote, terrible, weak candidate. And errors have been discovered in the hastily passed Republican tax bill with enormous consequences. Some of the errors include provisions that might allow some farmers to declare themselves tax-exempt. Another would effectively penalize restaurants for renovating their facilities. Day 416, March 11th. Bloomberg is reporting that Robert Mueller is nearly complete with his obstruction of justice probe, but made Elise releasing his findings in order to complete other parts of his inquiry. Mueller is also looking into collusion with the Russians and the hacking of Democratic emails, as well as several financial misdeeds. Qatar approached and then declined to provide Mueller with information due to a fear of antagonizing the White House. Qatar claims that the United Arab Emirates met secretly with son-in-law Jared Kushner and other Trump associates. And Steve Bannon told a gathering of far-right French politicians, quote, let them call you racist, let them call you xenophobes, let them call you nativists, wear it as a badge of honor, because every day we get stronger and they get weaker. And Vladimir Putin claimed Jews were responsible for the cyber attacks during the 2016 election. Maybe they are not even Russians, said Putin, but Ukrainians, Tatars are Jews, but with Russian citizenship, which should also be checked. Maybe they have dual citizenship or a green card. Maybe the U.S. paid them for this. How can you know that? I don't know either. Day 417, March 12th. Trump is trying to stop 60 Minutes from airing an interview with Stormy Daniels. Trump's lawyers are considering seeking a restraining order. The interview is slated to air on Sunday, March 18th on CBS. Daniels has also offered to return the $130,000 she received from Michael Cohen, saying she will wire it into an account of his choosing by Friday. In a separate 60 Minutes interview on Sunday, Betsy DeVos struggled to answer basic questions. 
Notably, DeVos had a hard time explaining why public schools in her home state of Michigan had performed very poorly despite pursuing the school choice policies she champions. DeVos was mocked for her appearance with a survivor of the Parkland High School massacre, observing archly on Twitter, quote, it's unfair to put the Secretary of Education on the spot like that. DeVos will also apparently be in charge of Trump's plan to arm school teachers. And claiming there is not much political support, to put it mildly, Trump walked back his high-profile commitment to take on the NRA. Trump said he would back off seeking a higher age limit for gun ownership and said he will, quote, watch court rulings. Left unsaid was the fact that it is the NRA suing the state of Florida over its new gun laws that restrict sales by age. Trump's move drew widespread outrage, with pressure again growing on Trump to do something about the repeated massacres on American soil. Day 418, March 13th. Trump sacked Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State via Twitter, elevating Mike Pompeo, the director of the CIA, to that position. Tillerson, who had repeatedly clashed with Trump, leaves behind a hollowed-out State Department. He had repeatedly refused to fill positions or to spend money. Trump did not explain his reasoning, but said he wanted Pompeo in position ahead of meetings with North Korea. Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee said they have found no evidence of collusion between Trump's presidential campaign and Russia to sway the 2016 election. The House investigation was considered to be deeply flawed and hyperpartisan, with former chair Republican Devin Nunes forced to step aside. Stormy Daniels offered to return $130,000 she received from Trump's personal lawyer for agreeing not to discuss an alleged relationship. The offer coming on the heels of news that Daniel will speak to 60 Minutes puts the White House in a bind. They accept Daniels can speak freely. If they decline, they tacitly admit they're trying to keep Daniels quiet. Trump blocked Broadcom's $117 billion bid for the chipmaker Qualcomm, citing national security concerns. The unprecedented move blocked what would have been the largest technology deal in history. Trump said credible evidence led him to believe the Singapore-based deal was a national security threat. And Trump has targeted an obscure Obama-era directive in his plan to deter school shootings, a guidance document that sought to rein in the suspensions and expulsions of minority students. Betsy DeVos is to lead a school safety commission charged with examining the repeal of the Obama administration's rethink school discipline policies. This move stunned many black activists given that black students have never been the culprits in mass shootings. Minority schools have also never been the targets. The guidance document has long been a target for far-right interests. The NAACP said in a statement that removal of that document, combined with a plan to arm teachers, quote, would simply turn schools into prisons. And the UK formally blamed Russia for the attempted assassination of former spy in Salisbury, England. Prime Minister Theresa May said that it was highly likely that Moscow is to blame for the poisoning of the agent and his daughter with a nerve agent, adding, we shall not tolerate such a brazen act of murder innocent civilians on our soil. The attack contaminated some 500 other people in numerous public spaces. Secretary of State Tillerson expressed astonishment at the use of the nerve agent in a public space. Quote, it's almost beyond comprehension that a state, an organized state, would do something like that. A non-state actor I could understand. A state actor I cannot understand why anyone would take such an action. Russia denies the attack. Day 419, March 14th. Gina Haspel will become the first woman to head the CIA. Haspel is a controversial figure. She oversaw the torture of two terrorism suspects during the George W. Bush administration and later destroyed videotapes that documented that torture at a black site in Thailand. She is currently the number two under Mike Pompeo. And Trump's body man, John McEnity, a former star quarterback at UConn, was suddenly fired and escorted from the White House grounds. Hours later, he was hired by the committee to re-elect Trump. McEnity's firing stunned aides, but multiple outlets report he's under investigation for serious financial crimes. And an ICE spokesman has resigned, saying that he could no longer, quote, 
bear the burden of spreading falsehoods on behalf of the Trump administration. James Schwab, who had worked for the agency's San Francisco division, said his decision was prompted by lies made by the agency on February 27th and then repeated by Jeff Sessions last week. Those statements claim the mayor of Oakland, Libby Schaaf's warnings to city residents had helped, quote, 864 criminal aliens and public safety threats to evade capture. That is not true. Trump is considering firing his Secretary of Veterans Affairs and installing Energy Secretary Rick Perry in the post. Dr. David Shulkin has long been a bipartisan figure, but he apparently refuses to go along with a scorched earth privatization policy at the VA and has vocally complained that Trump partisans are trying to oust him as a result. Trump advisor Roger Stone said he learned directly from WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange that they had obtained the emails of John Podesta and the Democratic National Committee. That directly contradicts sworn statements given by other members of the Trump campaign. Trump said that outer space is a war-fighting domain, and he wants to create a space force. We have the Air Force, we'll have the Space Force, said Trump during a speech to the military in San Diego. There, he was surveying samples of the border wall. Trump is in San Diego to, quote, pick the right one. And in Pennsylvania, Democrat Connor Lamb appears to have triumphed over Republican Rick Saccone and has been introduced as the congressman-elect. The result deals an ominous blow to the Republican Party. Trump took that district by 20 points in 2016. These are the Trump Diaries. Guest host Mike Shalau spoke with Tim Fitzpatrick, Calvin Fredrickson, and Andrew Gill about the changes roiling the beer industry and how Sierra Nevada, one of the nation's oldest craft brewers, is feeling the squeeze. The Beer Temple Insiders Roundtable with Chris Quinn airs every Thursday night at 8 p.m. There was a Brewbound article uh, and this, I think, this falls into line with a lot of the stuff that gets talked about on this show. A lot of kind of making new stuff all the time versus the flagship beer, and how Sierra Nevada is uh, is going to try to revive more or less uh, Pale Ale as a flagship brand. Uh, they had been committed to making uh, kind of rotating seasonal, like micro seasonal, I guess. They're changing all the time, trying to fill draft handles and stuff, and then. Now they said they want to pull back. They want to focus more on telling their story and uh, and re-establishing Sierra Nevada Pale Ale as one of the, the go-to craft beers in America. What do you guys think about that? Do you think that it's a good move to try to reclaim a, uh, a flagship, or do you think the flagship's going away? What, anyway, well, he's got some thoughts. I'm, I'm curious what story they're going to tell, you know? Yeah. Like, what, what's the story? Is it going to be... Found the recipe in their attic? Oh, wait. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The root beer guys did right. that. Right. <laughs> Can't do that one. I mean, it's a it's a good story. It seems that they've got to. T- I mean, they. I do think that a lot of the details about Sierra Nevada get buried. You know that they're like yeah. in family owned. That they were one of the originals. That right. they sort of you know were hot pioneers. So, mm-hmm. so I think they they do have a lot of room to tell that story better. But um, I'm not sure like where they would position it as the purchase. You know, like right. are they going to be trying to be the beer you buy for the football party, or are they going to be like the like Coors Banquet or something, but craft beer, you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I think when you think of a heritage brand, you know, you think of something like Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, Anchor Steam, um, to an extent, um, Sam Adams, Boston Lager. I mean, those those brands stick out to me as uh, as being gateway beers. You know, if we talk about gateway beers, it seems like every other show more or less. And uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale was on tap at Beer Temple for a reason. I think Chris and some of the other folks at Beer Temple believed in that beer, still do. And uh, I love it when 
who doesn't love it when an underrated beer, I think it's fair to say, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is underrated at a time when we're so uh, uh, interested in chasing the shiny new uh, beer can, so to speak, that uh, a classic like Sierra Nevada Pale Ale that inspired so many people to brew the new hyped up beers that we're chasing after instead. It's kind of ironic. I think they're poised to to do so, but it's like you were saying, Andrew, how do they how do they frame it? Do they get really sweet videos? Do they do they repatch? Do they base? I mean, has the branding really changed at all on those labels? Like, I think it's been yeah, the same I, I since remember. day one. <laughs> I, since I've been twenty one, I, I haven't seen it really shift at all. Um, in my experience, Fitz, maybe you've seen it shift. A no, bit. not not at all. Yeah. I, I agree with you when you say it's a, it was a gateway beer, but you know how, how often do you go back to that original gate and open it up again? You know, like that was ten years ago. You, most people are looking towards the future, and uh, unless they discount it so. I mean, it has to be so cheap that you can't not purchase it as a bar. Right. Um, or if they start double dry hopping it and make it taste completely different. And then, yeah. then are they really going back to that staple or are they trying to make it something else? Right, because right, they can't position it as a premium beer. You know, right, it's like exactly. it's it's a basic beer, right? So I'd like for them it's gonna, to try to I mean, that. for it to succeed, I think probably gonna, is going to have to replace like a, like in people's minds, like a Hams or a PBR or a High Life where yeah. it's like a a volume beer you can, you drink when you're not necessarily like seeking out the newest, rarest, weirdest thing. Uh, but I don't know if they can if they can really make that move like into like convincing right. people that it's and and if they are gonna try to make that move like do are they gonna have to like discount it significantly and move the price down like to like fifty cents a can like those things can be right. are they gonna have to put it in thirty racks is that like is that is that all yeah. and and if they do do that and do it successfully is that ultimately better for craft beer as a whole yeah. Because they're pushing out all the macros, right? Because yeah. why would you buy a PBR, an old style, or anything like that when you get a, a can for whatever it is for yeah. Sierra Nevada? Which, is, you know, this came up a few weeks ago on the show of talking about the founder's solid gold, you know, and, you know, Revolutions had the cross of gold. Yeah. There's the 15-pack beer, craft beers that are competitively priced. You know, mm -hmm. they come out, you know, pretty cheap for craft beer, but they're not competing with hams or whatever, obviously. Yeah. So are, would this be the first pale ale to like cross over into the hams territory right. you know what i mean to be i mean it's got to be scary for them to try to do it and if they do it and do it successfully what is stopping you know a golden road or a goose island that has a lot more resources behind them from just coming in and undercutting them so if you start competing on simply on making a, a flavorful beer but then you start competing on who's going to price it the lowest i don't know if you have enough like they'll they can just crush that like the bigger right. breweries that have deeper pockets can sell it at basically cost or a loss just to own the category i mean in a way though you could go you could you could outflank the uh the you know anheuser-busch acquired breweries and uh you know because those are go back at the latest to the 90s or the 80s with goose island yeah, you yeah. know if you go back to the 70s, then maybe it's old enough that it's like vintage. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that it's but like. Do you think they'd have to change the branding to do that? Or they think it to, would stay the same? Like Coors Banquet looks different than right. Coors Light looks. Yeah, like, right. They'd purposely. have to like thread that like vintage needle in some way with the like st staying true to what they are, but like, you know, playing up their sort of retroness in some way yeah. i don't know which would be an interesting needle to thread in an industry that for so long has been so about how we're new and we're different than this right. and we're, we do we focus on different things and the macro people focus on 
So there's going to be a lot of ha- there has to be going to have to be a lot of changing course in some some parts of that. For sure. Um, it's also interesting that they're taking a brand that's been down the. Uh, Six six percent overall. Is that what you're saying? Like, I think yeah, that's in the article. And Calvin, you knew the actual numbers of over, was, how, over how many years? Uh, the last two years, I think they're down six or eight percent each year. Um, and so it's, it's going to be interesting to see how do you how you write that ship. They're bringing in a an outside marketing firm. It's going to have an interesting turn for like we need to tell our story better. Someone else mm-hmm. is going to tell it, but people have different skills, I guess. So I think it's a waste of money. <laughs> Right, I think we all agreed here. It's like well, I don't, I, I don't mean, know. They in the article they say they're going after Sam Adams and Blue Moon. In yeah, a way. really. Um, Go, going down after well, them. Well, they they say <laughs> Sam Adams and Blue Moon do a much better job at their um, you know marketplace penetration as far as handles, I guess. So yeah, there's there's another section of the article where they talked about how when they went to the ever rotating handles, yeah. they got people to buy kegs, but then that handle would Just kind of evaporate as theirs in a way like 20-year relationships would go away because they had broken the handle into like a ultra vase or something and then some other brewery would come and have something more interesting or more sought after in that specific area and they would lose these relationships that they had worked on and they they created yeah and they see these bars go from two draft lines where they're one of them to a hundred draft lines where they're still just one of them or something so so I had a takeaway from this that struck me as interesting. Uh, they somebody said I think it was the CCO said that they did not have a brand manager, mm-hmm. or at least maybe still yeah, don't or did which not is for a period of time. Mind boggling. Blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking you don't have a brand manager, that's for that's basically pushing billion sort of dollar of, company. Right. Like they said like <laughs> well for like, a brand that's that was down eight percent. Sierra Nevada Sierra Nevada Pale Ale twenty seventeen. I believe this would be twenty seventeen data. Um, Eight point one, eight point one percent. That represents ten million dollars. Right, and you couldn't, and and you don't have anyone. It was really surprising, but what that tells me is that they, they are seem very. Uh, I don't know how to how to put it, I, and I mean this in an affectionate way. It, it seems very old school in the way that you know mm-hmm. we, we're so accustomed. Breweries that have opened in the past ten years are so accustomed to just having to market market the crap out of themselves. Right, Piperx, you know, took the tack of releasing, you know, lots of different beers. And that was kind of an approach that was true for you guys and really maintained excitement level from consumers in a way Spiteful did something similar. So we we don't really relate to the idea of just resting on one's laurels, so to speak. Certainly that, I'm right. not saying they did that. But they were so uh, dominant with Pale Ale for so long that right. maybe they aren't as nimble at this stage, uh, certainly with their size, as, as well, younger, smaller breweries are. And uh, I, not, I'm going to quote my dad, but he says, positive cash flow covers all wounds. So if, you know, you, if you're still making money and you're not doing anything, and you're, you're, why would you try to change? Well, why would you hire a brand manager if two years ago you, made, you, were, make, you were still growing that brand? It would seem like a not the best investment. And how how can you possibly foresee there being six thousand three hundred breweries, and you know you get and you know Goose Island and Golden Road coming from the top, and a bunch of breweries nipping at your heels at the bottom, cutting away from something that you've been making as fifty plus percent of your production? Like how how do you foresee that stuff? Mm-hmm. But I guess that's what that p- could be what that marketing firm helps them do. I mean, in a way too, the story of like Smutty Nose from a few months ago. Yeah. You know, it's all these breweries that have been around for so long are having like they didn't have to like have everything in order so well you know they didn't have to be on top of things like new breweries like you guys have had to from the get-go right especially if you've been doing it since the 70s then all of a sudden it hockey sticks up into like from a thousand and uh what 10 15 years ago to six thousand breweries you 
Yeah. Even on your most optimistic or pessimistic, I guess, depending on how you look at it from perspective, that something would be that explosive in its growth. The Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpin' Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay. Produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. Yeah.